All right, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here. We're going to finish up the book of Second Peter. We've been going through the epistles to written by Peter. We've gone through the book of First Peter, and we've gone through the first two chapters of Second Peter. And today we are going to cover the last chapter, the third chapter of Second Peter. And as you know, this is written by Peter um, as his last exhortation to the Christian people of his day. And so we are going to finish that today. Why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer and we'll get into the study. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day. We pray for a special blessing as we study from your word and may it give us guidance and instruction. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Second Peter chapter 3. And as you recall, what Peter has covered in the first two chapters so far. The first chapter, he describes what we call the ladder of salvation, where we can be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. And this ladder starts with faith. Into faith, we add virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, temperance, to temperance, patience, to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity or love. So this is the ladder of salvation that Peter describes. And as we come to verse 10, it says, if you give diligence to make your calling and election sure, if you do these things, you shall never fall. And so the exhortation to us is, if we follow the Lord, being partakers of the divine nature, we have the promise that we shall never fall, which reminds us of Jude 24, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. And then when we get to 2 Peter chapter 2, we see that Peter is contending against false doctrine that came into the Christian church. Uh, and he talks about how preachers or teachers will come in who will subtly bring in heresies. And if you go through the whole chapter, it's interesting the comparison um, Second Peter 2 and the book of Jude line up very nicely. The issues, um, the, the issues that are described, talking about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, talking about um, people who like to teach that it's okay to walk after the lust of the flesh. Second Peter 2 and the book of Jude are contending against that teaching. And specifically in the book of Jude, um, Jude says that teachers are turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, which Ellen White tells us is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so the teaching that you can do whatever you want and still be covered by the grace of God. Second Peter 2 in the book of Jude take issue with that teaching. And so we come now to chapter 3, which is the last chapter in the book. And Peter picks up the idea here in verse 1. He says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, 
that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. So Peter says, you know, you are my beloved fellow Christians and I'm writing this to you because I want to stir up your mind. So the purpose of this, of this epistle was to stir up the minds of the believers of that time. Now, if your mind is being stirred up, it's going to be actively thinking about whatever is being written here. So Peter's purpose in this book is to stir up the minds of the believers. So he's given them the ladder of salvation. And I, I didn't mention this today, but he talks about the more sure word of prophecy that we can hang our hats on by faith, so to speak. Then he talks about the false teachings that come in. And so at this point, he's hoping that the believers' minds will be stirred up. This is the way of salvation. We can be partakers of the divine nature adding to our faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge to knowledge, temperance to temperance, patience to patience, godliness to godliness, brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, love. That is the way of salvation. And on top of that, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Peter said, you know, I saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, but the sure word of prophecy is more sure than the experience I had when I saw Christ transfigured with my eyes. And then he says, this is the truth and false teachers are going to come in who will lead you astray from this truth. Don't let that happen. I'm stirring your mind up so that you will know what the truth is, that you will know what error is, and you will stay faithful to the truth. So Peter isn't just writing a nice little letter saying, hope you're doing well, be faithful to the Lord. He's saying, I'm stirring your mind up to be faithful to God. And so he says, which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. So his hope is that by writing this epistle, they will remember what truth is. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of, of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So what Peter is doing, he's trying to remind the Christian believers, look, the words which have been spoken before, all of scripture written by the holy prophets, that is what truth is. Don't be deceived by these false teachers that come in. And remember what those of us who are the apostles of our Lord and Savior have told you as well. Don't forget the teaching of truth. And now <clears throat> he gets into some specific issues, starting in verse 3. And we know these verses, but these are some issues that Peter felt was very important to make sure that the Christian believers understood of that time. He says in verse 3, Knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. Now, this is interesting because in 2 Peter chapter 2, we see that the false teachers that came in to the Christian church privately bringing in heresies and saying that you can walk after the lust of the flesh and the grace of God will still cover you. <clears throat> Peter now makes the connection in chapter 3 to show that when you start to teach that you can do whatever you want and God will still cover you, 
the end result of that teaching is that people will say, where's the promise of Christ coming? Is Jesus really coming? Does it really even matter? Because if you start to doubt the truth of God's word about what God can do for us in our lives, that we can be partakers of the, of the divine nature, that if we do those things on Peter's ladder, we will never fall, that God really is able to keep us from falling. If we start to doubt that, then why would we believe the promise of his coming? And when you walk after the lust of the flesh and you live for this earth, the end result will be, boy, I don't want Jesus to come because you know deep down in your heart, if Jesus were to come, I'm walking after the lust of the flesh and I won't be ready to see him. So what happens then is scoffers develop and they say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So now, <clears throat> scoffers come along saying, oh, you know, you can do whatever you want. And then the next step is, boy, things have always been this way. This whole thing about Jesus coming back, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, things have always been. There's always been wars. There's always been famines. There's always been floods. There's always been earthquakes. There's always been hurricanes. So whatever. You know, let's just all go out and have a good time. That is the progression of walking after the lust of the flesh and turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Um, and it's interesting, then in verse 5 it says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Now, what is Peter saying here? You know, how long did Noah preach that a flood was going to come to destroy the earth? It was 120 years. And the people of that day, or may I say the scientists of that day, said, it's never rained. What are you talking about, Noah? What you are describing is physically and scientifically impossible. What are you talking about, Noah? There were scoffers in the days of Noah. And look, he preached for 120 years. Now, I realize that the antediluvians lived for 900 years, but 120 years is a long time still, humanly speaking. To preach for 120 years that a flood is coming? I mean, don't you think that um, Noah would have lost credibility after about 60 years? I mean, and what about after 80 or 90 years? I mean, you've been saying for 80 or 90 years? I mean, 90 years, if you're fortunate if you live that long in this day and age, but to preach for 90 years that there's a flood coming and it hasn't come? I mean, talk about a credibility problem. And yet, people say that about Seventh-day Adventists today. Seventh-day Adventists have a credibility problem because we've been preaching that Jesus is coming for 165 years. Come. I, I believe it did, I, you know, I don't know, I think it took 120 years. I don't have 
the exact answer. Someone may be able to help me, but I believe it took the 120 years to build it, which is a long time. So not only is Noah preaching that a flood is coming, he's building an ark for a flood that has never happened. And so obviously the scientists of that day, and by the way, the people of that day were way smarter than the scientists of our day. So. Um, don't be fooled by the intellect of our scientists. They may be bright compared to humanity of our day, humanly speaking, but compared to the antediluvians of 4,000 years ago, they don't know anything. Um, and of course, compared to God, they know basically nothing. So Peter says, look, just as there were scoffers in the days of Noah, there's going to be scoffers in the days when Christ comes. And, you know, people who doubt the first 11 chapters of Genesis and the account of the flood and, and all of that, you know, there's one big problem with that because the New Testament verifies that the flood took place. So you have to throw out Second Peter because he says the flood occurred. You also have to throw out Matthew chapter 24 <clears throat> and this is found in Matthew chapter 24 starting in verse 36 now these are the words of Christ speaking about the flood it says but of that day and hour knoweth no man no not the angels in heaven but my father only but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now the first thing that we can say about this is, is that Jesus is saying that Noah was a true historical figure. It's not some allegory that's made up in the first 11 chapters. Jesus is saying that Noah, sorry, Noah was a true historical figure. So now you're going to have to contend with Jesus Christ as to whether or not Noah really existed. Jesus said he did, so I'll take the words of Christ. Now, in verse 38, he says, For as in the days that were before the flood, uh-oh, Jesus said there was a flood. So now if you're throwing out the first 11 chapters of Genesis saying that it's scientifically impossible and that a flood didn't take place, now you're going to have to throw out Matthew chapter 24. And the credibility of Jesus and the credibility of Christ. So now Christ is not credible when he says that Noah was a historical figure and that a flood took place. But notice what Christ is doing. He's not just speaking about the flood. Now continuing on. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Now Jesus says, see, there was an ark as well. Now that's even more of a problem there was an ark, and Jesus says there was. And Noah, a real person, entered a real ark. So you want to start arguing scientific evidence that Genesis 1 through 11 aren't possible. Now you're going to have to say, well, Jesus was deceived. You're telling me that God was deceived? Because Jesus is God, so there's no way. Jesus said, Noah entered the ark, there was a flood. And continuing on, verse 39, it says, And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So here's a group of people eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And 
the bottom line is here were a group of people consumed with the cares of this life and even though Noah had been preaching for 120 years that a flood was coming I mean you, you can make the flip side argument and say boy they had 120 years what was wrong with them I mean it wasn't a, a five-year message it was 120 years and it still says they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So here Christ makes it clear that the flood was a true historical fact. And notice how the, the end of verse 39 is. It says, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, notice what has happened. And Peter does this in 2 Peter, and you can see this in Matthew chapter 24. Peter and Christ both compare the flood to the second coming. And Peter and Christ both are showing us that as it was in the days of Noah, there were scoffers who said it's scientifically impossible for a flood to take place. The waters always have come up from the ground. We've never had rain come down from the sky. That's crazy. What are you talking about? All things have continued since the beginning of the creation. Since Adam sinned, we're all here, whatever. Life's going to continue as usual. And they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. Now what happens is, if you throw out the creation account, you're also likely to throw out Christ's account of so shall it also be when the Son of Man comes. Because if the flood's not true, then the second coming must not be true. Notice Christ is linking the credibility of the flood to the credibility of the second coming. So if you throw out the flood, you throw out the second coming. It's interesting, and Peter makes that connection. Going back to 2 Peter chapter 2, um, so he says, <clears throat> And notice in verse 5 he says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. It's like they're willingly ignorant of the flood. And if you look at Romans chapter 1, and, and you know, I'm, I'm going to spend too much time talking about all these things. But anyway, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Notice what Paul and Peter are saying. Paul says you're without excuse if you don't see God creating this world. Peter says people who don't believe in the flood and don't believe in the creation are willingly ignorant of that fact. And so, continuing on, um, verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So, <clears throat> Peter is saying, look, you can be willingly ignorant and claim that there's not going to be a, a second coming. You can deny that there was a flood. But look, the heavens and the earth, um, which are now... Look, by the same word that brought the flood, they're kept in store, and they're reserved unto fire against the day of judgment. So the, f the water from the flood brought judgment to the world of that day, and it's going to be the fire of God that brings judgment to the world at the end of time. So flood, fire. 
So it's, it's two separate events, but it's similar. So before it was the flood that destroyed the world, this time it's going to be fire. And yet Christ and Peter are comparing the flood and the second coming because most people will be unaware. Most people will ignore the warnings. And it may seem like the preaching of this coming event goes on for a long, long time. And people say, oh, that, that teaching has lost its credibility. They've been saying that for over 100 years now. Well, so did Noah. And the flood came. And Jesus says he's coming. And he is going to come. And I hope it's soon. Continuing on in verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. You see what Peter's saying here? Look, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as, as a day to the Lord. You know, you, you say, well, it's, all things continue as they were since the beginning of creation. I, I don't see any sign that Jesus is coming. Look, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day to the Lord. He's not slack concerning his promises. He's going to come. And you can say that all things continue as they were since the beginning of creation, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. The Bible says it will. And so, continuing on, so the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, it wasn't God's purpose for only eight people to be saved on the ark. I mean, the Lord is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. Do you, you know how sorrowful God must have been when only eight people got on that ark? I mean, he had provided a way of salvation to the world. And only eight people got on. Eight people. And there was no excuse. They had heard the message of warning for 120 years. And then God did supernatural things. The animals marched in perfect order and came to the ark, and the people still scoffed. Which shows that once people make up their minds and harden their hearts, and they're going to believe what they're going to believe, it doesn't matter what supernatural miracles God may work to prove the veracity of his word. They're going to keep doing their own wicked thing. God can send fire down from heaven, and people will say, you've killed the people of the Lord. God can, you know, Korodathan and Abiram, the earth opens up and swallows up Korodathan and Abiram. And the children of Israel said, you've killed the people of the Lord. You know, God sends a miracle and he has animals walk in pairs of two or in sevens. And, and people who had seen how animals had become you know, wild and unruly, now walk in perfect order into the ark, and they're like, oh, whatever. I'm not going to get on that ark. I'm going to just keep doing what I'm doing. And you look at the message of Scripture. Jesus says he's coming back. And we have more than enough evidence to know that Jesus went into the most holy place in 1844. The Holy Spirit was with the Millerite movement of that day. And people say, ah, oh, that was just a nice 
exercised by those people. They were sincere, but they were just wrong. Nothing happened in 1844. You know, let's just keep living like we're living. Jesus will come maybe someday. And yet here we are living in the judgment hour. And Jesus is about to come. He's given us plenty of evidence. And look, God is long-suffering to us. It was not God's design for us to be here for 165 years after 1844. I mean, I'm going to talk about this in the next hour, but God raised up Adventism for translation, not to prepare people for death. And 165 years has been a little bit too long. In fact, it's been way too long. But God is so long-suffering, He doesn't want us to perish. He wants all to come to repentance, so He gives us more time. God's not the problem, we are. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Notice verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Look, Peter's saying, look, the flood really came, and the day of the Lord is surely coming too. The day of the Lord will come. Notice how it will come. As a thief in the night. That means that most people will not be expecting it. It's going to be a surprise. And when a thief comes, a thief isn't coming to make your house a better place. A thief doesn't break into your house secretly in the middle of the night to rearrange your furniture to do a nice job for the house to make it look better. That's not why the thief is there. The thief is there to steal. Now, God is obviously not going to break his law and steal, so to speak, but what is happening, spiritually speaking, is eternal life will be lost for all those who are not ready. And yet, we just read that God is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want us coming to be as a thief in the night. I mean, Scripture tells us that we are not in darkness, that that day should overtake us as a thief. We should know the signs and be ready for it. And yet, those who stay in darkness, the day will come as a thief. And verse 11 says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Now, we talked about this in the, the book of 1 Peter as well, where he talks about having holy conversation and godliness. The word conversation really means conduct, the way we live our lives, certainly what we speak about, but holy conduct and godliness. It's like seeing that Jesus is coming, shouldn't we have a holy life and a godly life? And you may say, well, what are you talking about? I thought that nobody could be holy or godly. Second Peter 2, 
Second, Second Peter chapter 1 says that we can be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So how are we to be partakers of holy conversation and godliness? To be partakers of the divine nature, to climb that ladder of salvation in which you add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity or love. That is how we are to live as we prepare for Jesus to come. And there's so many illustrations that we could make from that ladder. But the bottom line is this, seeing that Jesus is coming soon, knowing the more sure word of prophecy, understanding that we are a prophetic people living in the time of judgment since 1844, shouldn't we be in all holy conversation and godliness? God has made a way for us to be partakers of the divine nature. And he's made it possible for us to be prepared for him to come in the clouds because he's long-suffering towards us, not willing that we should perish and that all should come to repentance. And I didn't mention this, but you know, the concept of repentance is one of the elements that is missing in Christianity today. People say, come to God as you are and stay as you are. There's no repent and be converted and believe the gospel. Repent, turn away from your life of sin and follow on to know the Lord and be partakers of the divine nature. It's just like, nah, come as you are and stay as you are. Keep sinning and God will cover you with his grace. That's not repentance. God is looking for people to give their lives completely to him, to have repentance and to follow the Lord completely. Continuing on in verse 12, it says, Looking for and hasting unto the, day, the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. So he ends with a question there. And look at this here. The word here um, in verse 12, it says, Looking for and hasting or hastening. It's like when we look for, we can also hasten the coming of the day of God. And this is, this is one place in Scripture that clearly teaches that God's people can hasten the coming of Christ. Did you know that? It's like God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. He's not slack concerning His promises. And He's saying, look, we should be looking for and hastening His coming. And so, rather than being scoffers and saying, well, maybe Jesus will come in my lifetime, but all things continue since they were since the beginning of creation, rather we should be saying, help me to keep my eyes on Jesus and be surrendered to him, to be a partaker of the divine nature and hasten the coming of Christ. That is the teaching of Scripture. And of course, we know Christ's Object Lessons, page 69 says, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. That does sound like we can hasten the coming. Or we can delay it. <clears throat> Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Now notice verse 13, nevertheless we, according to his promise, Look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Is that what you're looking for? And ask yourself that honestly as you look at that verse. Are you looking for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness? Or are you looking to make a name for yourself here on this earth? Are you looking to have a successful life? And then maybe Jesus can come at the end. 
that's not looking to hasten the coming of Christ. That's looking to just live this life here on this earth. And if Jesus comes, so be it. No. We're looking for the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's what we should look for. And, you know, if, if days go by where we don't even think about being in heaven, it might be because in our heart, heaven really isn't our home. We say that heaven is our home and we're just passing through. But, you know, if you go away from home on a trip and you get homesick, you think about home every day. But if you like where you are, you'll get acclimated and you'll, days will go by before you think about where you used to live. And, of course, on this earth, there's nothing wrong with that. But what about heaven? We should be thinking about heaven every day because that's what we're really looking for. Continuing on, verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Wow. If we look for such things, if we're looking for the things of heaven wherein dwelleth righteousness, we can be found without spot and blameless. And you know, that sounds like the 144,000 they are without fault before the throne of God. So, Scripture is teaching that we can be blameless, that we can be without spot. And as we saw how Second Peter 2 and the book of Jude paralleled each other last week, the book of Jude says, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the throne with exceeding joy. Look, that's what Jesus can do for us. He can keep us from falling and to present us faultless. So the, the last message of exhortation that Peter is giving to the Christian believers is, seeing that you look for such things, what things? A new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. We look for the coming of the day of God so that we can hasten it. If we look for such things and we're diligent that we may be found of him in peace without spot and blameness. Now this word diligent, we also see in Second Peter 1 verse 10 where it says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things ye shall never fall. So what is the diligence of the Christian walk? to do these things, which is Peter's ladder, which we've talked about, which starts with faith, ends with love, and all the things in between. If we do these things, we shall never fall. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, if we are diligent, we may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Now that sounds to me like the same thing. You give diligence, and you never fall. You give diligence, you're found without spot and blameless. Now, this is not, again, our own effort. This is when we become partakers of the divine nature and God works his power through us. It's his power, it's his strength, not our power or our strength. But at the end of the day, through God's power, he is able to keep us from falling, to present us flawless, so that he can present us without spot and blameless. That's the experience that I want to have. How about you? I want to be looking for new, the new heaven and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. I'm tired of this world. I mean, you can have the best paying job and all the nice things of life, 
but it's still a world of sin and sorrow. And no matter how many good things happen to you, you're still going to experience the suffering of sin on this earth. You're still going to experience the sorrow of sin on this earth. And the devil can try to make it look like this world is so great and so wonderful, but at the end of the day, the place to be is heaven, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So now Peter's going to wrap things up, starting in verse 15. He says, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. So Peter is acknowledging that, hey, God has spoken through Paul to describe this salvation to you. And read his writings because they will help you to experience salvation as well. However, notice what he says in verse 16, as also in all his, uh, in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. Wow, Peter, you're one of the apostles and it's hard for you to understand Paul? What happened to you? I thought you were filled with the Holy Spirit and could write scripture. You can't understand Paul when he's filled with the Holy Spirit and writes scripture. But no, Peter is acknowledging that Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he can be easily misunderstood. And he says, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Now, who do you think Peter might be talking about here? He's talking about the people that he described in chapter 2 of this book, the false teachers who would come in privately and bring in heresy. And he's saying these private teachers who are bringing in heresy are taking the scriptures of Paul and twisting them. And specifically what they are doing, we see in 2 Peter 2 and in the book of Jude, they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, which prepares them for destruction. Because Ellen White tells us that the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus says, that thing I hate. He says that in the book of Revelation. That is the teaching that turns the grace of God into lasciviousness. So what happens with these people who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness? They use the writings of Paul to try to prove their point. And Paul actually counters that in Romans chapter 3. He says, some have said, they've slanderously said, and others affirm that they say, whose damnation is just. He says, they have said, let us do good that evil may come. The more sin we do, the more grace we receive. And Paul says, if you're teaching that, your damnation is sure. And he says that in Romans 6, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. It's not too hard to understand the writings of Paul if you read the whole context. So Peter is saying, look, these false teachers, and I, they'll take the writings of Paul and twist it. And one of the Adventist or former Adventist theologians who so masterfully did this was Desmond Ford. And he would say, well, I'll take the Apostle Paul over Ellen White, and his word has more authority than hers. Well, it ended up being his interpretation of Paul, not what Paul really said. So anyway, so as we, as we see here, Peter is saying, look, wisdom has been given to Paul, 
But those who were unstable, those who were false teachers, they twist his writings and turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, saying, it's okay to walk after the lust of the flesh. God will cover you with his grace anyway. And he says, when you do that, you're twisting the scriptures to your own destruction. So don't do that. Verse 17, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. So he's like, look, you know these things. So he's speaking to people who know what truth is now. And they haven't been deceived by those who twist the scriptures and all of that. You know this, but just because you know the truth doesn't necessarily keep you from falling into wickedness. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Make sure that you're found without spot and blameless. Be steadfast. And then in verse 18, he wraps up and he says, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. You know, if we're continually growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we won't be deceived by error. I mean... You know, Ellen White says we would do well to spend a thoughtful hour each day meditating on the closing scenes of Christ's life. If we really did that, we would see the power of his life, the power of his love, and we wouldn't be deceived by these false teachings. And so as Peter wraps up his last epistle to the Christian believers, he makes it very clear. This is truth. God is able to keep us from falling, to present us spotless. This is error, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. And he says, be faithful to the end. And may we be faithful. Thank you, everyone.